welcome to another episode of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. Our guest this week is Josh Linkner. He is the author of the new book, Big Little Bake Breakthroughs. Easy for me to say. Uh, we talk all about his principles for creative thinking, uh, how, to, how, to, how to boost the creative thinking that you're doing in your own life. Just a fantastic, fantastically smart person who's talked to all of the best people in, in different areas for how to boost your creative thinking, how to make the little changes in your life that add up to the big changes to get you to the place you want to be. So very excited to bring that to you. Uh, Going to have a couple quick pieces of intelligence, but first, a quick word from our sponsors, including Rocket Mortgage. This part of Intelligence for Life, the podcast, is presented by Rocket Mortgage. Want to see your loan options, adjust payments and closing costs online in real time? Rocket can. Thanks again to our sponsors, Rocket Mortgage et al. Thank you guys so much for being a part of it today. And here we go. Two quick pieces of intelligence. One, when so much, with so many of us working and studying from home, Google data shows that searches for productivity and time management hit a five-year high last year. It spawned a new type of social media influencer, productivity gurus. A simple search for the word productivity on YouTube or Instagram pops up content from influencers like time-saving tips, life lessons, and productivity hacks. I think we all need a little bit of that while working from home, rethinking our work schedule, how we make it work. Uh, that, I think that's great. Okay, here we go. One more. To feel more energized in the morning and sleep better at night, try this advice from Stanford University Medical Center. Get a dose of natural light within five minutes of waking up and spend half an hour in it. You could walk your dog, do some stretches on your balcony, or just drink your coffee and check your email by a window. Outside is best, but just getting a dose of natural light tamps down the production of your sleep hormone melatonin so you feel less groggy and more awake. And then once night comes... Your melatonin will kick in into overdrive, helping you fall asleep faster. Just one more hack that says, basically act like a caveman. You know, if you want to wake up, be outside. If you want to go to bed, turn off all your lights and go to bed. Like that's, it's just uh, more of that. You know, live how we how we are, are designed to live, how are you evolved to live. All right, folks, uh, that's enough of that. If you like that intelligence, thank you guys so much. Uh, here is my interview that I'm very excited to bring you with Josh Linkner. Josh Linkner, I mean, you are, you have, you have a lot of uh, bona fides, uh, bona fides. I could go through them all. But most importantly, you are author of the new book, Big Little Breakthroughs. It's not your first book. It was your, like your fifth one? This is number four, actually. Four? That's incredible. All right. So first of all, thank you so much for making time for us today. I, I, re I really appreciate it. Yeah, truly a pleasure to be with you. All right, so your book, uh, I mean, you, you've done a lot of coaching, a lot of speaking around the world. You've, you've started businesses yourself. Uh, your book, Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results, you know, the, the, at its core, well, why don't you, you tell me the thesis of it, so I'm not putting it out. What is, what is the core of Big Little Breakthroughs? Uh, you know, so most of us think of innovation as these giant change the world, billions of dollars kind of things. And in that, that context, it's inaccessible. So Big Little Breakthroughs flips that upside down and has people focus on small everyday innovations to drive meaningful results. And, and the notion is that these little tiny, small micro innovations or small acts of creativity are way less risky. They're within the grasp of all of us. We can apply them to every area of life. And while we're enjoying them, by the way, we're cultivating uh, the skill. So it's sort of a win all around it. And it's flipping traditional innovation upside down. This is more like innovation for the rest of us. You know, I, one of the things I really like about that is I think so many of us look at innovation. We, like, look, we look at the most innovative companies that are going right now and you see them and you go, well, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think electric cars are going to be the future, but I don't have access to the capital or the engineering talent or the business talent required 
to begin to make a revolutionary, you know, electric car company. Uh, I don't have access to uh, the kind of money and government contracts necessary to start a space company or or even even you know even a logistics company like like what Amazon's back end is. So what I like about this is it cuts out some of the excuses we have for making change in our lives because we it, it gets rid of the well I don't have the resources so I can't and it gets you into the world of well what can I do what are the small things that I can do it, it really does a good job of cultivating or beginning to cultivate a, a growth mindset which I think is is really important yeah you're so right and and the thing is you really don't need to be wearing a hoodie or a lab coat to be innovative Right. And the research, by the way, is crystal clear here that all of us as human beings have enormous reservoirs of creative capacity. And then think of it as dormant creativity. And we may apply it in different ways. Like I have actually background playing jazz guitar. So I play jazz guitar pretty well. I can't draw a stick figure if I tried. So let's, <laughs> let's get past the, the, the notion that you have to be painting with oil on canvas to be creative. We can be creative as you're selling used cars. You can be creative you know, working a customer service desk. You can be creative in a family or in your church or in your community or with your kids. So creativity is a universal thing. We all have this capacity. And the book really helps people bring those skills to the surface and put them to use. You know, instead of creativity only looking like, like you said, like inventing some new electric car, I'll tell you what's everyday creativity. You know how you warm up a glass of, of wine? If you put ice in it, it dilutes the wine. You know what creative approach is? A big little breakthrough? Use a frozen grape. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen so, that. I've seen that. It's genius. So my only point is that that when we think of creativity as something that is within the grasp of all of us, and we can apply it to the things that matter most to us in our daily lives, it really becomes liberating, and it gives us a whole new toolkit and framework to to go for the things that we care about the most. So, so I mean, okay. So, so baked into this notion is that we all have some sort of inherent creativity that we can apply, right? So we we have this these abilities. Uh, but you know, are we changing the world by? Are we changing even our lives by putting the frozen grape in the wine in order to keep our white wine cool? Or, or uh, how does how does the big little breakthrough drive? You know, how do we get to the the back end of that? How does it drive the oversized results? Because I I'll buy your idea that that we all have this inherent creativity. We don't need to swing as big as you're talking about. We can just do little changes. But do those little changes eventually become the big the big things that will change our lives? Yeah, awesome question. And the, the answer is, is an emphatic yes. In fact, it's funny, Harvard did a study recently, and, and while we celebrate the Elon Musks in the media, it turns out 72% of the United States gross domestic product comes from big little breakthroughs, from, from those small ideas, mm. the ideas that are within, within the grasp of each of us. And a good way to think of it, perhaps, is, is the art form of pointillism. So if you've ever seen pointillism, yeah. you, know, you basically use a single dot of a primary color. Anyone can do it. A four-year-old could put it on the canvas. So the dot itself isn't that hard, but you put a couple more dots and a couple more dots, and before long, it, it, it cascades into something of meaning and substance. And so uh, my, yeah, introduction to point, my introduction to pointillism, I think like a lot of people, was uh, from Ferris Bueller's Day Off because there's um, it's Sunday in the park with uh, Sunday afternoon in the park is in the Chicago Museum and it's in the uh, it's in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So just thanks. <laughs> thanks to John Hughes for making that possible. <laughs> Amazing. Well, well, you're so right. But, the, you know, the idea is that these little things really do add up to big stuff. And, and, you know, it's true that, that a, a Picasso will be remembered for generations, but if you come up with an idea that boosts your sales revenue by 4%, like that means something, or, or all of a sudden you re reduce safety hazards in a factory by 4%. Awesome. And right. so, you know, get, there, there are different flavors of innovation. I'm not saying that we should, should ignore the big stuff, but there's so much more opportunity for us cultivating the little stuff and having those little ones add up to big things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh... 
I mean, I, I understand that those four percent changes in the law of large numbers applies. Like, so if you have if you have a factory and you're making, and and your work you're operating a factory forty eighty hours a week with multiple shifts, that maybe uh, your boss there and 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 switching that to four down four percent, that's lives that are going to be saved. That's arms that are going to remain attached. I mean, not to get overly dramatic about it, but that's that that I get that. But if we're talking about it for for the individual, how do we begin to see those four percent changes? Uh, manifest into into larger changes in our lives because I think a lot of people, a lot of people go ah, what's the point of making you know having a four percent better marriage or having a four percent being a four percent better parent? Well, let's go uh, you and me on a trip over to London for a second. So one of the people that I interviewed in in the book is a guy named Trowin Resterick, and Trowin's someone you've probably never heard of. He's not fancy. He doesn't make covers of magazines. Sounds and, like and a Trowin fictional is- character from uh, from uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes novel. It absolutely does. And by the way, he looks like that. He's kind of like the sophisticated looking guy, but in ratty clothes. Anyway, British accent, the whole deal. But Trowin, like he's a normal guy. He went to college, barely scraped by. He, he, he took a normal job after graduating, just trying to pay the bills. But, but Trowin really was drawn to the environment. He just was like an outdoorsman. And so he learned that in central London, the single biggest litter problem is cigarette butts. So, you know, besides being unsightly, they're, they're terrible for the environment. Mm-hmm. You know, little kids or, or animals can ingest them. It's bad all around. Cost millions of dollars a year to clean up. It's not effective. So they tried all these things. They, they tried these campaigns that would shame people into compliance. Nothing works. Until Trowin one day has an idea, a big little breakthrough. And what Trowin came up with is something called the ballot bin, which is like about two and a half feet tall. It's this bright yellow metal box with a glass front. It's mounted at eye level. And there's, there's a divider down the middle of it. And basically, there's a question at the top. It's a two-part question. For example, which do you prefer, pizza or hamburgers? And there's a little receptacle there that allows people to vote with their butts. So you take your (laughs) cigarette butt, you stick it under the thing that says pizza, and you see it fall on top of the other cigarette butts. It's like two bar charts next to each other, and you can instantly see which one is in the lead. So look at this. This is non-tech. It didn't require 14 PhDs. He didn't have a billion-dollar budget. He didn't have like NASA space materials. He came up with this, a big little idea. And you know what happened? Cigarette litter was reduced by 80%. Yeah. So Trevin went on to start this company now, and he's actually now, he's live in 27 countries. He's making a real dent in the environmental challenges, all because he's a normal dude that decided to come up with a big little breakthrough. Do, do you see us all being able to have that kind of stellar breakthrough? Because even though that's a small thing, it has a big impact. Uh, I don't know that I have that much innovation in me every day. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, well, again, once again, the research is very clear that, that creativity is very much like your weight, not your height. So for me, I'm 5'5 five, five on a good day, and there ain't no way I'm going to be 6'3 tomorrow. But my weight, I can fluctuate based on my behavior. I can, I can train and you know, nutrition right. and such. And, and, and creativity is the same thing. It's like a language or a muscle. It's something you can learn and you can build. And so when we build that skill set, doesn't mean that we're all going to become the next Jimi Hendrix. But it does mean that we, we have a new tool to use for whatever the things that are important, whether it's getting a raise or, or boosting your relationship with your spouse or, or being a better parent or, or getting a, you know, landing the Jones account at work. So right. whatever the things are that matter to you, this becomes an important and often the, the most important differentiated asset to help you win in those, in those tough scenarios. So I would argue that you actually do have that capability and, and you can apply it. Again, you might have one big idea once a year, but you have, might have lots of little small ones too. And, and they all are good. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be dismissive of an idea just because it's small, we should recognize that the small things add up to big stuff. So uh, what I, how do we begin to build in the feedback for ourselves into these small changes? Because like, like exercise is a great example. So many people, they go to the gym and the first week that you're at the gym, it hurts and you just have to motivate yourself to get over that. 
And eventually, all of the secondary elements of exercise begin to take over and give you that that push. How did we begin to get to that place with uh, changes that are that are not necessarily so uh, somatic? Well, one thing that's kind of cool is that creativity is a high leverage activity and that a small tweak to creativity can yield a disproportionately large uh, gain. So there is sort of that feedback loop that will come um, certainly over time. But the thing I always recommend people to do is think about, you know, we, we upgrade all stuff, a lot of things in our lives. We upgrade our wardrobes or our cars or our tech or whatever. Why couldn't we think about giving ourselves a creativity upgrade? And so in that context, I'm not suggesting a 100% or a 1,000% creativity upgrade. I'm suggesting a 5% creativity upgrade. So 5% totally within the grasp of all of us, that seems reasonable. And with a little bit of deliberate effort, a little bit of cultivating that skill, a little bit of practice, um, we can start to really unlock great outcomes. Uh, because often outcomes in our lives are binary. You know, you, you win the job or you lose it. You win right. the account or you right. lose it. And, and, and if this can be that little extra something that pushes you over the top, again, it's a high leverage activity that I think people will very quickly start to see the gains. You know, once we can get past the myths, get past the, oh, I'm just not creative. I wasn't born that way or I don't have enough money or time. By the way, one of the funniest things that I always hear is, hey, I, I just, I want to be creative, but I don't have fill in the blank. Right. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough bandwidth. I don't have enough raw materials. I don't have enough office space, whatever the, what is the thing is. But I would respectfully say this. If the amount of external resources somebody has equals the amount of creativity they have, the federal government would be the most creative organization on the planet. <laughs> and startups, startups would be the least. And we know exactly the opposite is true. So I think right. we, we really can double down on this internal sense of, of creative wonder. Look, we all had it as kids. You've never met a non-creative four-year-old. So let, let's kind of reconnect to those roots and put them to use, again, productively. I'm not suggesting people draw on the walls with crayons. I'm suggesting people use their creativity to drive the outcomes that they seek. Mm. How do you begin? I mean, I know you do you do some speaking and, and, and talks. How do you begin to unpack people who have uh, ingrained... Uh, self-talk, negative self-talk, you know, the, the longer we go, the longer we're separated from that four-year-old you were just talking about, the harder it is for us to engage in this kind of creativity. I think our, our sort of entrenched ideas of ourselves get in the way. So how do you begin to break that open and begin to make that first change? Well, the first thing is dispelling some myths around, you know, who's creative and who's not and such. But the best thing I would recommend is using techniques. So if you think about this, let's say in, in the backyard of your house, you had, you had an oil well and you want to get to that oil. So an ineffective way would be using a plastic shovel. A more effective way would be using, you know, commercial grade equipment. So most of us try to dig essentially for our creativity using a plastic shovel. We mm -hmm. use outdated techniques like brainstorming, which are wildly, um, again, out of date and ineffective. Um, here's a simple example. There's a technique, and I have like I share a whole toolkit in the book and also online of, of, of better techniques. But one of them is pretty fun. It's called roll storming. So role storming is brainstorming, but in character. Interesting. So here's the rub. Let, let's, say, let's say you're trying to take on a real problem. Like, hey, how do, how do we uh, grow revenue by 15% next quarter? So instead of everyone in the room sitting around sharing their safe answers, their puny answers, because they don't want to say something foolish or look wrong or offend the boss, everybody picks a character. So maybe someone picks Steve Jobs. Well, there's no, but, no way that people in the room are going to laugh at Steve for coming up with a big idea. They might laugh at Steve for coming up with a small one. So now in this example, you, AKA Steve, you're totally liberated. You're not responsible for the ideas you share. You're just role playing that you're Steve Jobs. So the way it works, you pick anybody you want. You could be an author, you could be a musician, you could be a, a villain or a hero, fictitious, whatever, a sports legend. And you, everyone in the room picks their own character and actually takes on the real world problem as if they are somebody else. And I've seen this happen in real time, man. The, the results are staggering. 
people who are, are all frozen up and, and uncomfortable being creative, they, they get into a different role and, and the, the, the barriers come down and the, and the whiteboards are filled with ideas. Interesting. So it gives you permission. I mean, basically, it gives you permission to look stupid because you don't look stupid. Uh, Steve Jobs looks stupid. Exactly. Right. You don't look That's stupid. Exactly right. Bill Gates looks stupid. I mean, like, so you just really get to put that on its head. I like that. That's exactly. And that's exactly right. And by, funny enough, I did this with a group of executives one time at Sony Japan. I met this guy who was the stiffest human being I've ever met in my life. You know, dark suit, white shirt, tie, stiff as a board. Anyway, we got him roll storming as Yoda. And <laughs> I, I have never seen personal transformation like this. This dude's jacket's off, his tie's undone. He's like leaping around the room. And, and I didn't teach him to be creative. Those he freshman year theater classes are really paying off for him all of a sudden. <laughs> Exactly right. You know, and he, and he had that inside all along. The thing is that, that before it was restricted and we, we gave him a new framework, a new technology, a new technique, and he was able to liberate that creative capacity. Mm. Mm. Uh, why doesn't why doesn't brainstorming work? What is what is the research there? Because I, I haven't heard that this idea that that brainstorming is, is a bad move. I understand why this is better. But you mentioned that it, that it doesn't work in general. So so why? Uh, what, what is the downside if you can unlock this? To, to doing just standard brainstorming? Yeah, so brainstorming was invented in 1958, and one might say that a lot of things have changed since 1958. Um, so it, it's just an outdated model, and it doesn't work for a couple reasons. The first reason is, by the way, the biggest blocker of creative output is not natural talent. The biggest reason brainstorming doesn't work is fear. And so fear, if you right. think about it, the poisonous force that holds us back. And so, you know, let's say you have this killer idea, but you're unsure of it. You know, again, it, it, do you want to risk your career? Do you want to look foolish? Do you want to be judged by your colleagues? So we tend to share, again, our safe, puny ideas, our incremental ones, rather than our more profound ones. Um, the second thing that happens is that we tend to commingle two distinct parts of the creative process. One part of the creative process is ideation, which is jamming and coming up with new ideas. Mm -hmm. The second part of the creative process is execution related. Like, will this work? Well, who's going to fund it? How, you know, where does it fit in the PowerPoint deck? And so the problem is, our brains are so well developed in Western thinking around execution. We have like these big giant execution brains and kind of puny creative brains sometimes. Mm -hmm. So the minute someone comes up with a creative idea, which by the way, most often they're not perfect because it's just the start. There's one person in the room that has the idea and everybody else becomes the instantly self-appointed idea police. Right. And they say, oh, well, that, this is never going to work. We tried that back in 1987. That didn't work. And so everyone pounces on the idea and they prematurely extinguish it. So you're, when you really need to separate ideation, I call it idea jamming. I prefer that to brainstorming. And, and let those ideas come out in full force, unregulated, without restriction. And then later, separately, at part, part two, figure out how to best execute them. Uh, okay. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to come up with some more ways to unlock our creativity, as well as how to begin to filter out uh, what? How, how to how to actually be those those executive thinkers that that you were just criticizing? But we I eventually have to get to the practical. So uh, when we come back, I want I want to talk about both of those things. Take a quick break. Josh Langner, before we we took a break, we were talking about uh about you know uh, role play, uh, role storming versus versus brainstorming. Uh, and, and how that unlocks the, the the creativity. Do you have other other ways of allowing us to tap into our natural creativity that uh, that that we normally that normally stop us? 
Yeah, I do. So in, in the new book, Big Little Breakthroughs, I cover the eight obsessions of everyday innovators. And these are mindset shifts that are, again, within the grasp of all of us that we can really put into practice. And, and then we go, you know, they're filled with lots of stories and examples. And they're fun. Like one of them is called Using Every Drop of Toothpaste, which is basically about getting kind of scrappy and, and when you're resource constrained. Another yeah. one is called Don't Forget the Dinner Mint, where you're sort of plussing up an idea with a little creative um, something extra. But, but to answer your question back on technique, um, well, go, wait, hold, hold, hold on real fast, but because because I feel like the the every drop of toothpaste thing is the kind of stuff that that Google asks as part of their uh, hiring because you know they get these people from all over, but they they really they really emphasize creative problem solving in their hiring process. I mean, they're famous for it, um, and and because they believe it, it drives their innovation. So like they would ask questions of how do you get all of the you know they give you too much toothpaste and ask you to get all of the stuff out of it things things like that. Is that is that kind of what you mean by that? Um, well, those are actually two different. So, so creative problem solving, totally agree and support. Um, the, the notion that the principle of using every drop of toothpaste is actually more about around being resourceful and scrappy. Uh, so yeah. it's, it's around figuring out, like, like they think about MacGyver, you know, MacGyver right. didn't, didn't have superpowers. You couldn't use x-ray vision, but, but, but he, he, he figured it out with the role of duct tape. Yeah. And so that's really what it's more about is being inventive and in, in using ingenuity. More. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but anyway, back to your question about technique. Uh, so I identified 13 techniques like the um, like role storming that are very powerful for idea extraction. You might think of another right. one that's kind of fun is called the judo flip. So the way the judo flip works is it lets you're trying to, to accomplish something. You make a list of how have you always done it before? What's the prevailing wisdom? What, what is the conventional approach? And then you start, draw a line down the page. And next to each entry, you just ask yourself, what's the polar opposite? What would it look like if I did the total opposite? So just a quick example. I just read about this a couple of days ago. There's, there's 65,000 Chinese restaurants in North America. And, and they're all kind of like very similar. And, and yeah. they also often have puffery, like the world's greatest egg roll or the best egg foo young in New York City. Right. right. So, so there's all this puffery and, and, and they all kind of look the same. So enter a, a non-traditional uh, Chinese restaurant in, in, um, in, in Montreal. And the owner decided to judo flip that. So next to every entry on the item, on the menu, there's a little thing that says owner's comments. And oh, I've seen this. I've seen this. Oh, my gosh. I've seen. Yes. Go, go, go. Yeah, I, I know. What to, oh, yeah. It's hysterically funny. They're like, oh, you want this dish? Honestly, that's not that good. Order the other dish instead. Or this dish is just not that authentic. Or right. this one's a little soggy if you, if you wait too long. And so he's he like sort of criticizing his own thing. Instead of puffery, it's the opposite. He judo flipped it. And as a result, here you and I are talking about this restaurant today. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's okay. That's genius. But, but now, okay, we know that that worked. We know that that idea of of judo flipping. So, so I mean, so far the two techniques that we've the practical techniques we've given is is um, the idea of uh, of role role storming, where you where you put on someone else's persona and brainstorm from their perspective, uh, solve, solve the problem from their perspective. The, uh, the, this is, this is taking the, the traditional model and, and pushing back and, and doing the opposite, right? Which is the, the judo flip. How do you begin to, cause I, I know that this, that the Montreal, uh, the Montreal thing worked because I heard about it. Uh, you've heard about it, but also how do you get over the fear that this is a bad idea? I'm criticizing, I'm criticizing my meals that I want people to buy. You know what I mean? Like how does how do you get over that hump of the of the sort of you know either the executive function of the executives in the room or the executive function of your own brain telling you this is a bad idea? 
Excellent question. So most often when we think of deploying an idea, we think of it's all or nothing. Like you either yeah. do it or you don't do it. You bet your whole future and, and it's scary and risky and all that. So if the stakes are that high, you, you gravitate to doing nothing. Right. The best suggestion I have, and one of the principles actually, it's called open a test kitchen, funny enough, although it's not really food related, but the notion is getting getting around an experimentation mindset. So let's say you had that idea in your Chinese restaurant in Minneapolis. Instead of just changing every menu and putting out a press release, you might say, what if I did it with one menu? And I tried it in one lunch shift on a Tuesday afternoon, and then I asked customers afterwards what they thought of it. And so the notion is around taking lots of, lots of bets, lots of swings, but keeping them in controlled experiments, small prototypes. You know, it's fixed time, fixed money. And so ideally, any one of us might be running five or 10 little mini experiments at any one time, recognizing full well that 80% are going to fail. So let's get those ones that aren't going to work out. If everyone hated it, great, move on to the next idea. But let's say people thought they chuckled, they thought it was great, they wanted to take a selfie with it. I still wouldn't roll it out permanently. Then I do a second test. I might test it for a week. I might test it for a month. And so by the time you roll something out, you de-risk the creative process. Mm. So being, being creative doesn't mean taking irresponsible risk. And I might argue that doing nothing is far riskier than, yeah. than trying new ideas in a disciplined way. I mean, look, I have been saying this a lot, especially since the pandemic, that, you know, our our attachment to the secure is very clearly misplaced. Right. We are we are clearly walking around in a world where where the status quo is no longer the safe the safe bet. So we do have to be constantly changing. We do have to be constantly tapping into this creative mindset. There's there is no more uh, being able to sit on the sidelines and let life happen. We have to be doing these things. I mean, it, uh, I, I agree so, so firmly about that. You know, it's funny. I've, I've been in business now 30 years. And I'll tell you, the one thing that I've learned is that too often people overestimate the risk of trying something new, but they underestimate the risk of standing still. Oof, oof, oof. I mean, I think that's going to, that's going to, if, if it doesn't, if that doesn't punch you in the gut right now, uh, then, then maybe you don't really fully understand what he's saying. Because yes, you're absolutely right. We, I think we, we think of that we, we, I think for a lot of us, we tend to be those people in the room that you were describing before, where we just spend a lot of time batting down our own ideas, batting down our own, finding out, the, coming up with the ways that it won't work instead of engaging and making the sort of small changes like your, like your book suggests that will, that will, uh, we can check and make sure that they work, you know? Uh, like the uh, Pixar d did at the beginning where they just were animating a little uh, lamp as a proof of concept that computer animation could work. You know, uh, th th these kinds of things are, 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 how, are how big ideas eventually come. So I, I, I do love that. Wow. Uh, I, I do. I want to get into um, I want to get into how we can begin applying this to some other areas of our life because uh, I don't know that a lot of us are going to sit in a room and go, how would Steve Jobs approach repairing my marriage or my relationship with my teenage daughter? Um, so, you know, how do you, how do you begin to apply this on, in things other than business where, where the testing can be sort of done with multiple people as opposed to, you can't really test on your kids in the same way, can you? Uh, <laughs> that doesn't sound very good, does it? So, um, no, I wouldn't test on my kids. Right, but, but, here, the, here's a, but because this, cause you don't have another, you don't have another group to try it on. So, like, the, you know, to go to the just to flesh this out a little bit more, to go to the Chinese food example, you know, the people that come in the lunch on Tuesday are not going to be the same people that come in for the dinner rush on Friday. It's different people. So, if you try something and it failed, you're not killing the Friday night crowd. But when you have a kid, you know, you, the stakes are a lot higher uh, for you to try something and fail. 
Well, that that's true. I certainly don't, not advising people, you know, test life-threatening uh, ideas. Well, but, not but life-threatening can, ideas. I don't mean, but even yeah. just relationship-changing ideas. Yeah, but you can still test stuff. I mean, you know, you can say, hey, we're gonna we have an idea for a, a once-a-week family check-in. You know, try it for a month and see how it works. If you don't like it, then then discard it. So I yeah. still think you can you can apply testing in in personal relationships. But a couple other principles I just want to share quickly. One of them, one of the principles in the book, we call it "Start before you're ready." And so the notion of starting before you're ready is instead of waiting for a directive or for permission or till all conditions are perfect, it's getting after something, knowing full well you don't have all the answers. And it's a right. willingness to be agile and course correct and sort of adapt and pivot as you go. You, what we find is you're better off just starting on something than, than waiting around till your plan is, is, is perfectly set in stone. Uh, so, so, you know, that, that's one thing. Another principle, though, that we talk about is called break it to fix it. So a good way you say, how do you do this in your personal lives? Um, mechanically, what you want to do is examine a system or a process or whatever you happen to be doing, and, and that might be working fine. You know, instead of waiting till something fails, let's say let's say you, your something's working great. Well, let's examine it. So you, you sort of take, take it and put it under the microscope and deconstruct it. Say, okay, what are the individual components of this thing? And then you examine them and say, okay, is there a way I could put them back together in a better way? Could I substitute something out? Could I add something to it? And so when you have this sort of break it to fix it approach, you're challenging the way things are instead of just accepting them blindly. So a really funny example of this in action in your personal life. So Halloween time, you ever carve a pumpkin? Yes. How do you do it? Uh, first thing I do is I carve, I open up the top and I take out the guts. Right. So that's what everybody does. And you just probably do that because that's the way pumpkins are carved. Yes. The problem with that is that, first of all, you, you carve up this, you got to stick your hand in there and they get all full of goop. Yep. And then, and then, you know, you got to carry it around. It becomes all slippery and, and, and it makes a mess. By the way, try lighting a candle. You got to stick your hand down that hole and it mm -hmm. gets second degree burns. So here's, here's, here's a break it to fix it approach. Carve it from the bottom. So this is going to oh. blow your mind, but think of, think about it. You carve a hole in the bottom, all the gunk falls out. You get to use gravity. You want to carry it around, use the handle on the top that nature intended, and you want to light the candle, you put the base down, put the Stop. candle on it, overlay the pumpkin. Stop. This Duck. makes too much sense. Stop Game it. Game changer, right? Game changer. Incidentally, no one listening today will ever carve a pumpkin the same way. No. Yeah. And so, again, the, the point isn't about pumpkins per se, but it's around let's, let's challenge those things in our lives that, that we don't necessarily think are wrong, but just say, okay, is there a way we could be more creative with it? And that could be the way that we you know, mow the lawn or the way that we interact with our friends or, or anywhere in between. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, so yeah, you can, you, you can do those small things. You can then, uh, you can try them out. You can apply them and, and see what's working and then slowly roll them out into more areas of your life. Um, uh, and, and, and you, you've what, 13 different methods like this, uh, laid out in your, in the book. Yeah. So the book covers, you know, big picture, there's eight core mindsets, which are again, within the grasp of all of us, things that we can focus on as a, as a principle. And then there are these, uh, these tactics. And so throughout the book, and, and of course, there's some online supplement that, that are, are tactics, very practical tools like judo flipping or, or like roll storming. Uh, another one's funny. It was called the bad idea brainstorm, where you start by brainstorming bad ideas and mm. then examine them to see if there's any good ones in there. So yeah, they're fun. They're non-traditional and they're very effective in, in bringing creativity to the surface. Amazing. Uh, you, you talk about mindset. I, I want to wrap this up, but I do want to talk about the importance of mindset as we as we begin to close. Uh, you know, you say eight core mindsets. Are you are you implying that we that there's sort of eight categories that we fall into in our perception of ourselves, or 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 how does that what is that what is that how does that reflect in this idea of of, of big little breakthroughs? 
Um, yeah, so I've had the chance, uh, you know, in the research, I spent over a thousand hours in research and interviews with uh, incredible people, you know, CEOs, billionaires, celebrity entrepreneurs, but also people like we mentioned, like Trevor and Resterick, who is you know, an everyday person doing really incredible things. And what I, what I found through, through this and really through my body of work over the last many decades studying creativity is that there are some common patterns, common mindsets of the most innovative people. And that's what we cover in the book. And so they're not necessarily taking people's existing mindsets. It's more sharing the commonalities among everyday innovators. And, and some of these, you know, which you covered, another one real quickly is called fall seven times stand eight, which is, you know, the phrase itself is part of a Zen proverb. But the notion is basically it's around understanding how do you bounce back from adversity, which is inevitable. Mm-hmm. When, when you have a setback or a challenge, you know, what, what do you do to get back after it? And it's sort of it's the fusion of, of kind of creativity and resilience. So the, the mindsets themselves are, are pretty easy to understand, but then they're, they're supported with a lot of, you know, sort of research driven uh, data, but also stories of how people have put these ideas into action to, to, to drive great results for themselves and those around them. Yeah. Yeah. The book, Big Little Breakthroughs, uh, linked to where you can buy it in the show notes. Josh Linkner. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. I'm going to ask you two last things. Uh, first and foremost, aside from buying the book, which everybody needs to do, uh, where where can people follow up with you? Well, thank you for that. Um, so you, I'm on social media on all channels, just my name, at Josh Linkner. Uh, you can also check me out at joshlinkner.com or biglittlebreakthroughs.com. Link to the website in the show notes as well as, as Josh's uh, uh, social media accounts. One last question, and I ask it to everybody. What is one thing we can all start doing today that will make our lives a whole lot better? One thing today people can do is uh, give yourself a time frame on this, like for the next 21 days. See if you can uncover one creative idea, a teeny tiny little one. You don't even have to do it. Just think of it once a day. So I'm talking about little stuff. For example, next time you go to order a pizza, ask for the pepperoni under the cheese instead of on top. So just all you're doing is challenging yourself, sort of like creative jumping jacks. Looking for one little creative flip that you could do once a day. And what will happen, by the way, is you create momentum and it starts to seep into you and it becomes part of who you are. And then it starts to build. And, and that's, that's the exciting thing to me. One big little breakthrough at a time. Put the milk in before the cereal like a weirdo. There you go. Love that. Oh, man. Uh, Josh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we really appreciate it. And, uh, uh, and yeah, just, just a, lot, a lot to ruminate over there. So thank you. <laughs> Truly my pleasure. I hope, uh, thanks again for having the opportunity to chat with you today. That's it for our show today. Thank you guys so much for being a part of it. If you like the show, please rate, comment, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Helps us out a lot. Follow up with us, facebook.com slash John Tesh, where we spend a lot of time. We go live there several times a week. We're always trying to interact with you guys. Uh, John is also on Instagram, at John Tesh underscore IFYL. I am Gib Gerard. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, at Gib Gerard, or facebook.com slash Gib Gerard. I try to respond to every message, every comment, every DM about the show. I've even had guests on that you guys have recommended. Because ultimately, I do this show for you guys. So thank you so much for listening.